I'm pretty easily distracted. Uh, let me describe a typical Saturday morning. I've got a long list of jobs that need doing, but the main one is that I need to make sure the lawn gets made. I head out into the backyard and I notice some tools that need to be put away. I'll just do those first, then get onto the mowing. As I'm putting the tools away, I notice the fertiliser, and I remember that the plants really need fertilising, so I go and do that. On the way back from the garden, I notice that the side gate has a squeak in the hinge, so I go and get some WD-40 and I fix the squeak. While I've got the WD-40 in my hand, I remember that the gears on my bike are a bit sticky, so I spend the next hour fixing those, adjusting the brakes, checking the tyres. Then I remember that the air pressure on the car tyres is a bit low as well. So I drive down to the service station, check the tyres, adjust the fluid levels. Then on the way back in the car, I stop at the hardware store to buy some sandpaper for the windows. While I'm at the hardware store, I notice five other things I'd been meaning to buy for a while. And so it goes until, you guessed it, I get to the end of the day and the grass hasn't been made. It's easy to get distracted from what's really important, all sorts of good things to be doing, all competing for my attention. Even when you've got your priorities clear, when you know what's most important, it's hard when you're surrounded by competing cries. When there are all sorts of good things to do that distract us from what's most important. But what about us as a church? How do we work out what the most important things uh, are that we should be doing? Different churches take different approaches. Uh, for, some, for some churches, social welfare is the most important thing. Soup kitchens, meals on wheels, drop-in centres, meeting people, people's physical needs. Other churches focus on being relevant, having a political voice on current issues, asylum seekers, the environment and so on. Other churches see that meeting community needs is what they should be doing. And so their week is full of educational workshops, Alcoholics Anonymous, parenting courses, marriage seminars. Still other churches, the emphasis is all about the Sunday meeting. Whether it's formal and traditional and liturgical, or even modern, relevant and exciting, the emphasis is all about Sunday. Now, now they're all good things to be doing, but how do we decide what our priorities are? And how do we stick to them? Even when you've got your priorities clear, it's hard when you're surrounded by competing cries. Now that's how it must have been for Jesus. There were people pulling him in a dozen different directions. And as you look at the passage we've just read, you can see that. Jesus, surrounded by competing cries, so many people, so many needs... And yet for Jesus, the top priority is very clear. You can see it in his first recorded words, chapter 1, verse 14. It's a statement that spells out exactly what he's here to be doing, exactly the way he's going to do business, what he's going to focus on. Pick it up halfway through verse 14. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He's come to bring in God's kingdom. He's the king who's calling people to himself, calling a kingdom into existence. He does that by preaching, preaching for repentance and faith. 
That's his top priority. He wants people to change from the heart. Turn around, repent, your sins will be forgiven. That's his message, that's his mission. Jesus has come to preach. So it's no surprise that's exactly what you find him doing when you get to verse 21. They arrive in Capernaum. Jesus heads to the synagogue. What for? To teach. But can you see, straight away, there's a competing cry. There's a huge need. A man possessed by an evil spirit. He's crying out. See there, verse 24? What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The evil spirit talking through the man. So what does Jesus do? This is the king over God's kingdom. And the unclean spirit can't compete with his power. Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him. A royal command. In verse 26, the evil spirit shakes the man and comes out of him with a shriek. This evil spirit does as it's told. A competing cry and Jesus deals with it and the people are amazed. Let's keep going. Verse 29, Jesus leaves the synagogue with Simon and Andrew. He's finished preaching. But another competing cry. Verse 29, Simon's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. They tell Jesus. It's it's another cry for help. Jesus touches her. She's healed. She gets up and makes them dinner. But the day's not over yet. Word gets out, verse 32, that evening after sunset. The whole town gathers at at her door. (laughs) All the sick and demon-possessed. I wonder if Peter's mother-in-law had enough dinner uh, to share with them as well. And Jesus healed whoever came to him. Next story, a bit further on, verse 40 to 45, another cry. A man with leprosy comes and begs on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Of course Jesus is willing. He's filled with compassion. I am willing, he says, be clean, and he is. Now, now this is all amazing stuff. All these competing cries, all of the need, and finally someone who can do something about it. Heal the sick, drive out demons, cleanse lepers. Surely they're the things to focus on, aren't they? The priorities. Crowd pleasers like this are far more important than preaching, aren't they? This is a marketer's dream. The loving thing is to meet people's felt need, isn't it? Far more important than preaching about repentance and forgiveness of sin, isn't it? Well, at least that's what the crowds think. That's why they're crowding around. Verse 45, the healed leper tells so many people about his healing, the excitement multiplies so much, Jesus can't even stay in the towns without causing a riot of desperate people. But even when he goes out into the desert, they still flock. They chase him over the hills. It's like that movie Notting Hill. Julia Roberts is a famous movie star. She's staying the night at a normal house in a normal street in Notting Hill, but the paparazzi find out about it and they turn up at the door and she answers the doorbell in the morning, opens the door and there's an absolute circus outside. There are thousands of camera flashes going off. Everyone wants a piece of her. And it's getting like that for Jesus. So what does Jesus do? What's his response? How does he deal with a situation like that? It's tough to stick to your priorities 
when there are so many competing cries. But, but that's exactly what he does. And I want to suggest there are three parts to the strategy. Three parts to his strategy. The first one is to control the publicity. The first strategy is to uh, control the publicity. So back in verse 25, how does he respond to the evil spirit? He tells him to be quiet. Now, he may be doing nothing more than showing him who's boss, but it seems like he's deliberately trying to keep his mission under wraps. Same thing again in verse 34. He heals many who have diseases and drives out demons, but look at what he says in verse 34. He wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Same thing a bit further on, this time the leper. The leper's just been healed, but have a look in verse 43. Jesus sends him away at once with a strong warning, see that you don't tell this to anyone. Jesus is actually trying to keep his miracles quiet, to control the publicity. He will always heal, but he wants it on the quiet. He wants to stop people getting distracted. You would think that if Jesus was on about preaching and getting his message out, that he'd be happy for the publicity. But we see why he's doing that when we look at what happens next. Why he wants to control the publicity, verse 45. The evil spirits might obey Jesus, but the, the leper doesn't. Instead of doing what he was told, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. You see, the publicity actually makes it harder for Jesus to go into the towns and preach. Because there are healing riots. People are distracted from the most important thing by the good thing. Look, it's understandable, isn't it? I would probably be the same. They're suffering. And here's someone who can do something about it. So Jesus' first strategy was attempting to control the publicity, to, to keep people's attention on the top priority. His second strategy is sort of hand in glove with the first. It, it's to keep preaching, to keep doing what his top priority is. We can see that uh, best in the episode that starts in verse 35. Now, it's stuck in the middle of all of these healings in chapter 1. It doesn't seem to fit until we take a closer look. Verse 35, it's the morning after the night before. It's been a huge night of healing. We don't know how long it went on. You think everyone would be entitled to a sleep in, but not Jesus. He's up before sunrise and he finds a quiet place. There's time for some quality time with his father except it doesn't last long. The disciples find him. And their concerns are quite different from Jesus. They're concerned about satisfying the crowd, about meeting the need. That's the competing cry. And when they find him, have a look what they say in verse 37. Everyone's looking for you. What does Jesus answer? What's his strategy to maintain his priority? Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there. That's why I've come. It's tough sticking to your priorities when you're surrounded by competing cries. It's tough, but that's what Jesus will do. He's here to preach, to call people to repent, to be forgiven for their sins. 
Now let's, let's get it straight. This is not because Jesus doesn't want to heal. He doesn't ignore competing cries. Whenever a suffering person came before him, he healed them. I can't find an example where he ever said no. He always did it. Jesus healed because of who he was. His nature is to help, to love. He healed because he had compassion. And you can see that in the story of the leper, can't you? Verse 40. It comes straight after Jesus single-mindedly choosing to go to another village, to leave the crowds behind. And it's almost as if Mark includes this story of the leper here for those of us who might be wondering about Jesus' compassion. The leper comes to him, begs him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He's so used to rejection and abuse and isolation, he can't imagine anyone wanting to give him anything. If you're willing. And look at Jesus' response, verse 41. Filled with compassion. It's a great Greek word. (laughs) Splankidzomai. It almost sounds like what it is. It's about from his guts. From his guts. Filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. His heart goes out to this abandoned, suffering man and he touches him. But rather than uncleanness being contagious, it's actually cleanness that's contagious. Healing and wholeness is contagious and he's restored. Now, I think Mark includes this story here as a way of saying that Jesus' single-minded focus on preaching, it's not because he doesn't care. You see, it's actually his compassion that drives his preaching. His compassion drives his preaching. Only preaching meets people's greatest need. Preaching meets people's greatest need. His second strategy was to keep preaching. The third part of his strategy was to give what people need most to give what's needed most, to meet the greatest need. People want one thing, Jesus wants another. The disciples value one sort of attention, Jesus values a different sort. And you can see this comparison, this contrast most clearly in the story that we finish with today, the story in chapter 2. It's a story that ties the whole section together. Jesus is back in Capernaum, it's a few days later, perhaps things have settled down, but no, the crowds are bigger than ever. They're still hungry for healing, but Jesus still wants to teach. Notice there, the start of chapter 2, so many gather, there's no room left, not even outside the door, and he preaches the word to them. But there's one group who are so desperate for healing that they do something amazing. They don't just push and shove and they rip the roof off. They lower their paralysed mate down on his bed. This is the ultimate cry for help. This is the the loudest competing cry of all, isn't it? It's a dramatic moment. What does this man need most from Jesus? What's his greatest need? It's obvious, isn't it? He can't walk. 
And Jesus, the great physician, the great diagnostician, (laughs) he, he looks at the man, the man looks up at Jesus. His friends peer down through the hole at Jesus. The crowd looks at Jesus and Jesus says to him there in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine the crowd. What's forgiveness got to do with it? It's healing he needs. Any fool can see that. He can't even walk. But somehow for Jesus, the number one thing is eternity and where you stand before God which matters more than fixing his legs for this life. But notice he doesn't ignore his pain. He heals his legs too. He does it to prove that he can forgive sins. The teachers of the law are right. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus proves he's got God's authority to forgive sins by healing the legs. And the guy dances out of the house with forgiven sins and strong legs, with the best thing and the good thing. (laughs) And everyone praises God because Jesus is God. He's the big God in charge of every part of life and who cares enough to fix it all up, to restore it all, to fix the body and the soul the king of God's kingdom who brings healing and wholeness and freedom. So what's that have to say to us? Well, the first thing to recognise is that Jesus' priorities haven't changed. What was important then is important now. The gospel is still a priority. Now, that's hard to believe, perhaps. Perhaps you're struggling with some sort of chronic illness. It's hard to believe that you need to repent and have your sins forgiven more than you need physical healing. You need to repent and have your sins forgiven more than you need a long life or a new job. You need to repent and have your sins forgiven more than you need that holiday or that marriage partner or that new house. If you haven't repented and allowed Jesus to be the king of your life, Nothing matters more. How does that work itself out in practice? What things do you pray about? What matters most that you spend valuable time praying about? What things are you determined and committed and regular and consistent about praying for? Is it physical, temporary things or is it eternal, spiritual things? Because it reflects your priorities, doesn't it? What you pray for. I know that every night since before our kids were born, my parents, when my mum was alive and Karen's parents as well, prayed for them. What did they pray for? They didn't pray that they'd grow up healthy or have good jobs. They might have prayed for those things as well, but they prayed that they would grow up to love and serve Jesus. That's a far higher priority than than health or wealth or any of the things that we commonly fill our prayers with.
I count those prayers as super valuable when I think when I'm grateful to God for my kids following Jesus. Certainly not my consistent standards. How about how you use your money? We say with our, with our heads that the gospel is our number one priority, but is that backed up with our wallet? Uh, or what about us as a church? Uh, there are lots of good things we could be doing, but unless we're telling people the gospel, the good news about repentance and forgiveness and making Jesus your king, then we're not doing our job. We're hosting a preschool. We're starting ESL courses. We show movies. We teach scripture. We, we could add other things. We could find jobs for the unemployed. We could run soup kitchens. They're good things. We could, they, they would be treating people with the compassion of Jesus. But, we'd, but if they're not building bridges, if they're not helping to introduce people to Jesus, if they're not helping us in some sort of strategy that encourages them to repent and turn to him, it doesn't matter how many good things we do, we're not helping with the best thing. Now, any good thing we might want to start, it doesn't have to have a sermon, it doesn't have to have an evangelistic address as part of that event, but it needs to be part of a strategy. It needs to fit into a plan, a series of steps that move people towards Jesus. Bridges that invite them in to know more so that they can hear the message of repentance. A full stomach, a job, new parenting skills. They're good things. Jesus cares about those things. Jesus came to deal with those things. But they're not the best thing. We need to be a, number one, uh, need to be a church whose number one priority is the same as Jesus. A church who preaches the gospel is our top priority in as many different ways as we can, to as many different people as we can, as winsomely, engagingly, lovingly, completely as we can. It's what Jesus was on about. The gospel, this call to repent and believe, is the number one thing. No matter what the competing cries are, we need to make sure that's what we're about too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the compassion that Jesus showed, the compassion to heal, to restore, to preach, to forgive. That's your compassion. Help us to know it. Help us to live it out as well, that we might reflect your priorities as a church, as families, as individuals, for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.